Welcome to the Rocky Valley Podcast. This is Pastor Jason Moe. We're glad you stopped in to have a listen, and we hope that this blesses you in some way. Oh 
just so y'all know, I taught her everything she knows. Miss Charlotte Kennedy's with us tonight. It's a great honor to have her. We gave Mama the night off. Um, you can throw a rock at her next Sunday. She's at the Jim Brickman concert in Nashville. Um, but uh, Charlotte, thank you. That was beautiful. She said, I've got a really pretty offertory. It's a little long. I said, that's okay. We want to hear it. So go ahead and play. Worthy of worship. Worthy of praise.
Amen. And might I just say that should you ever question the length of an offertory, feel free to play it if it sounds anything like that sounded. I didn't know there were that many keys on the piano. Once you don't know is once church is over, I'm going to slide over there and see if she added any when we weren't looking. So, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 will be in the first 12 verses this evening. The attitudes of being a believer. The attitudes of being a believer. This evening, we get the great pleasure, the great challenge of tackling what is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this is a huge undertaking given the fact that this sermon was preached by the greatest preacher ever, Jesus. This is a sermon that was preached by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as we dive into these chapters, we have to keep in mind these are the words of our Savior. And so as we seek to dive deeper into these, uh, we, we have to do it with the utmost care, I suppose. And, and we dive into all scripture that way. I hope you know by now I don't preach recklessly or without preparation. But the Sermon on the Mount is, uh, is kind of a, a holy grail of teaching, you might say, for someone to tackle that. So I'm excited, and I think it's fitting that we're diving into this because we just came out of the book of James. And if you'll remember... Uh, so often as we went through James, I would, I would reference back to the Sermon on the Mount. And I even told you that James was in some ways a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to see many of the same ideals that we hit in the book of James as we go through uh, these three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. And really this Sermon on the Mount from Jesus was intended for his core disciples. But by chapter 7, you'll see that quite a multitude uh, really ended up hearing it. So uh, as we dive into it, I'll say we could spend several weeks preaching just on these really first eight Beatitudes or these first eight thoughts that are contained in these first 12 verses. But uh, instead, because we're focusing to, to get through the entire sermon, uh, we're going to kind of hit the Beatitudes all at once. So we're going to take it in one chunk and then sometime at a later date, we may go back and break them down into eight individuals and preach about them. But we're going to take kind of one chunk tonight uh, and go through. So would you please stand, if you're able and willing, for the reading of the holy words of Jesus. From the book of Matthew, chapter 5, the first 12 verses. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. 
Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let us pray. Father God, we ask now that you would do what only you can do. And that is command our focus and remove any thought or any spirit from this place that might hinder our worship through the teaching of your word in the next few minutes. God, we thank you for your presence in our music service, Lord God. And God, we promise that we will give you the praise and the honor and the glory for all because you are worthy of that. We love you. And it is in your precious, saving, heavenly name we pray, as all God's children said, you may be seated. Now on the surface, the Beatitudes really kind of look like um, oxymorons or uh, contradictory words. They look like words that just don't really make sense. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like jumbo shrimp. just doesn't really go together, does it? Come on, catch up. Pretty ugly. Doesn't really go together. Short sermon. Doesn't really work, right? These words that when you put them together, you go, that, that just doesn't fit. I mean, look at them if you just kind of glance through them. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the mourning. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are the persecuted. Now, on the surface, that just doesn't line up, does it? Uh, one might argue that in terms of of culture of Jesus' time, and even in terms of our culture today, the attitudes and actions or thoughts that are prescribed and described here in the Beatitudes are really quite countercultural, you might say. They, they don't really make uh, good sense. They don't line up with what you would think they, they should. But now picture with me as we kind of dive into this countercultural teaching that Jesus, to this point, has been tempted, he's fasted, he has uh, chosen some disciples, he has begun to heal people, and he has cast out demons. And so he had begun to kick his ministry off in a mighty way, you might say. There would be throngs of people. Now just imagine with me the notoriety that would begin to, to gain for this person. Here is this, this new prophet who is saying he is the son of God, who's saying that he is in fact the Messiah, and he goes around and he's teaching in a way that we've never heard anyone teach. And not only is he teaching in a way that we've never heard anyone teach, but here as he travels into town, he, he's healing multitudes of sick people. And, and, he, and he grabbed some fishermen off a boat and told them to follow him. And they followed him and now they're going around. And then even the other day, this Jesus, this prophet who has come on the scene, he, he cast out a demon. Well, of course, he would begin to gain the notoriety and begin to be followed and begin to be looked at by the throng. And so Jesus, who had become popular in this section of Scripture in terms of the multitudes following him, decided to go up to the mountain. He decided to pull himself back. And as he went up to kind of get away from as much of the crowd as possible, he sits down to address his disciples. So he really took those who were closest to him, 
and said, let's, let's get away from the ministry for a minute. Let's get away from this work for a moment. And I, and I want to put some serious teaching one-on-one into you. And so as he starts to teach, Jesus gives us eight Beatitudes that we're going to look at tonight. The first four deal with our relationship to God. So you might call them, I call them the vertical Beatitudes. So they're us and our attitude with God. The last four I call the horizontal Beatitudes. So they're us to, to fellow Christians or fellow man, you might even say, not just fellow Christians. And so we're going to move through these in order tonight. And the first one is this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That word for poor there is a word that literally means one who doesn't have sufficient food, sufficient clothing, or sufficient shelter. Now this is not somebody who had a bad month and had to borrow a little money, or somebody who took a week off work for the flu and had to go into their savings account. This is somebody who has Nothing. They don't have enough. They don't have food. They don't have clothing. They don't have shelter. They don't have the things that they need to survive. They would be beggars. And so given that, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So he says, blessed are those who are begging in spirit. So what does it mean to be a spiritual beggar? It means one who would consider themselves spiritually bankrupt. Somebody that would consider themselves spiritually bankrupt. Somebody who realizes I am so poor spiritually that I am completely dependent upon God and his goodness. Completely dependent on God and his goodness. Martin Luther once wrote, God created out of nothing, therefore until man becomes nothing himself, God can make nothing out of him. Let me read that again. God created out of nothing Therefore, until man becomes nothing himself, God can create nothing out of him. So we have to realize how poor we are in spirit and how little we are and how much we can't do before we can recognize what God can do with us. And so that's why he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. We cannot live a life pleasing to God until we realize our need for God. Uh, Because if we don't realize our need for God to live a life pleasing to God, we're going to spend our lives trying to live up to somebody else's standards. Or worse, our own standards. So we're going to compare ourselves to others, or we're going to compare ourselves to what we think a good standard is. But to live for Christ is not to compare ourselves to each other. It's not to compare ourselves to what we think a good person ought to look like. But to live for Christ is to compare ourselves to God's word and to compare ourselves to Jesus Christ. And for any of us to find ourselves comparing it against the word of God, we will always find that we are spiritually bankrupt. Because if you're being honest, if you put yourself against the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. You're always going to be found poor in spirit when you use the book to check how you're doing. That's why James wrote what he wrote, that we would check ourselves, that we'd give ourselves a spiritual checkup, that we would constantly examine ourselves. And so we need to find ourselves to the point that we would say, I'm nothing apart from Christ and mean it. Not say it. When we're at church, not say it uh, when we're writing a letter, but to mean I am nothing apart from Christ. I can't work. 
I can't raise my children. I can't get up in the morning and put my clothes on apart from Christ. I am spiritually bankrupt without Jesus Christ. And what is the reward for getting to the point that you realize that you're nothing apart from Christ? Kingdom of heaven. That's not a bad plan for realizing how needy you are, is it? That's not a bad thing to, to look at and see from Scripture. What is our reward for recognizing that we're spiritually bankrupt and crying out to Jesus? It's the kingdom of heaven. So blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now this could refer to the mourning earthly over the loss of something or someone. We uh, certainly hope to comfort those who are mourning, but most likely... It's referring to being in mourning over your sin. That's really what he's, what he's writing about here. Looking to uh, our lack of righteousness and lamenting over the fact that we have sin still present in our lives. Blessed are those who look at their lives, who look at themselves, realize they're poor in spirit, and realize that they have so much sin in their life, even though Christ died for their sin, even though they've been forgiven for their sin, even though they want to live for Christ, they still have so much sin. The believer should constantly examine himself in terms of his relationship with God and look to himself and despise his sin. We should constantly look at ourselves and lament over the sin that we still commit. It has been written that true Christianity will manifest itself in what we laugh at and what we cry about. So will you find yourself weeping over your sin? But what's he say? Those of us who come to that point where we examine ourselves and find ourselves lamenting over our sin, we shall be comforted. We shall be comforted eternally, right? It's a, it's a now consequence, you might say, with an eternal satisfaction. So I'm going to mourn over my sin because I fall short of the glory of God. But eternally, I'm going to be satisfied. He then goes on to, his, to the next. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Now, I want to be clear. Jesus didn't mean in this statement. Blessed are those who are found deficient of courage. All right, when we see the word meek, we tend to think of somebody who's a doormat. Somebody that gets run over. Right? As, as men, we tend to think, oh, I'm not going to be meek. I'm going to stand on my own two feet. Right? Until I roar a lot. I'm going to eat this cheeseburger, right? So, Jesus is not talking about those who are deficient of courage. This word for meek or gentle was generally used to describe the bridling of something that was wild or putting one's strength and power under control. So think of it in terms of that definition. Blessed are those who put their strength and power under control, for they shall inherit the earth. Not somebody... Uh, who's a doormat, not somebody who's weak or a pushover. So it's, it's really somebody who's able to submit themselves to the will of God. Blessed are those who are able to take their power and their strength and put it in the will of God, submit it under the power and the authority of their Father. They're blessed. 
The strongest man in the world is not the one who has the power to force his will on others, but the one who has the power and willingly submits it. Let me say that again. The strongest man in the world is not the one with the power to force his will on others, but the one who has the power but willingly submits it. He has the strength to submit that power and fall in the will of God. In Numbers 12, 3, Moses is called the meekest man on earth. Yet, he murdered someone and was the leader that took the Israelites out of Egypt. And yet he's described as the meekest man on earth. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus used the same word to describe Jesus. So we know it's not referring to a lack of power but a willingness to submit to the will of the Father. So what happens for those who surrender to the will of the Father? Inherit the earth. Now, I think there's a twofold meaning or two implied truths here to they will inherit the earth. Uh, one, I think, is, is the obvious reigning with Christ eternally. You will inherit the earth as you reign with Christ eternally. But I also think that there's a humility that is gained in submitting to the will of God in that once we learn to submit ourselves to the will of God, we gain the earth by being satisfied in the things that he has for us. Think about that with me for a moment. What's one of the greatest blessings to being fully submitted to the will of God? It is the satisfaction in knowing that the things you have are the things that God has provided for you. And they're the things you need. So what do you mean, Brother Jason? Well, I mean that in Scripture it tells us that he works all things together for the good of those who love him. And so the things that I have, whether they be painful, whether they hurt, whether they not be what I really think I want, I know that if I am being obedient to God, they are the things that I need. And so blessed are those that are willing to say, I'm going to submit to the will of God of my life, and I'm going to inherit the earth because I'm going to learn to be satisfied in the things that God has provided to me. Now, I don't want anybody to go out of here and say, Brother Jason said that we ought not buy a new house. We ought to be just tickled pink with the one we got. Or Brother Jason said I should keep driving this car that's falling apart. Or I shouldn't buy a new coat. I should just keep this old one. That's not, I don't care what you buy or what you spend your money on or what you think you want. I'm telling you to submit to the will of God and be obedient, okay? And if you're submitting to the will of God and you still feel like as a family you ought to buy a new house, fine, go buy a new house. I didn't say you were a sinner and I didn't say you didn't love God. I, I, I said something like that one time and I had a husband and a wife contact me later and let me know that I caused a serious squabble on the way home because they were looking to buy a house and they thought that I was saying they ought to be happy with the house they had. He said we're not going to spend the money. She said we're going to get a divorce if we don't. That's not what I'm saying at all. So I just want to put a disclaimer out there and be clear. Then he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. They shall be satisfied, you could say. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say blessed are the righteous, does it? It says blessed are those who are seeking desperately righteousness. It doesn't say blessed those who arrived 
He says, blessed are those who are striving with everything in their being to get there. In other words, it's literally saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, those who, who are, are, are striving with everything they have to be like Christ. What is righteousness? Righteousness means counted in a right living before God. So blessed are those who are striving to be living like Christ. They want to be like Christ above all else. And so what is the reward for seeking to be like Christ? You'll be satisfied. You'll be filled. And then you'll be perfected in eternity. Notice something with all four of those vertical beatitudes in terms of our responses to God and our attitudes towards God and our living and our thoughts towards God. There are earthly attitudes but they all have a heavenly reward. Right? They're earthly attitudes, but they're heavenly and eternal rewards. And so the first four had an attitude towards God. Now we're going to look at the last four. And they start to deal with our attitudes towards each other. Now, bless God, in here I look out, and all of you have wonderful attitudes with each other, so we should just fly through this section. But there are some people listening on the podcast who may not be quite as, as holy as some of you guys, so we'll, we'll preach through it anyway. And plus, I need to hear it. Um, so, blessed are those who show no mercy, right? No, 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 no. Blessed are those who show mercy, for mercy shall be shown to them. What is mercy? It's a willingness to not impose a penalty where a penalty is deserved. Mercy is a willingness not to impose a penalty where a penalty is deserved. What do you mean, Brother Jason? I mean that when somebody has wronged you and they stand fully deserving punishment, mercy would be not punishing them. Let me say that again. When someone has wronged you and they stand Fully deserving punishment. Mercy is choosing not to punish them. Somebody wrongs you. Somebody doesn't do you right. Mercy would be letting it go. When someone wrongs you, will you pray for God to bless them anyway? It's difficult, isn't it? Easy to pray for those people who are your friends, easy to pray for the people that have never done anything to you. But what about those who have wronged you? Do you find yourselves in your prayer closet thinking, boy, I can't wait to pray for that guy? Or do you find yourselves in your gossip circles thinking, I can't wait to talk about that person. But the last place I want to think about them is my prayer closet. Should we show mercy? James 2.13 says, Judgment will be without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. I don't know about you guys, but I want the mercy of God because I realize that I don't deserve it. I realize that I didn't deserve it on the day that I gave my life to Jesus. I didn't deserve his grace. I did not deserve his mercy. And so that should be reflected in my attitude towards others. Because I have received mercy, I should grant 
mercy to others. So, blessed are the merciful, they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Now, this is referring to the one who is internally pure, which manifests itself in being externally pure. Jesus consistently challenged the Pharisees on this, didn't he? Didn't Jesus consistently come against the Pharisees who were, they were externally pure, right? The Pharisees had it right on the outside. They washed their hands the right way. They cooked their food the right way. They tithed the right way. They went to church on the right day. They faced the right direction when they prayed. They crossed their fingers the right way. On the Sabbath, they didn't pour the cold water into the hot. They did everything that they were supposed to do. Externally, if you looked at them, you thought they had it all together. But in the story we heard this morning, there was one Pharisee that didn't, at least... Simon had it all together externally, but internally he was found a debtor and a sinner, not knowing that he needed a Savior. What Jesus is saying, the pure in heart, those who are pure internally, then it manifests itself externally. The things that they do are a result of the Savior that they know, not the things that they do are a result of seeking the pleasure of man. So, In other words, having clean hands and a pure heart and not just clean hands and an unclean heart. So what should we do? We should spend time asking the Lord to reveal any impurities or any uncleanness. That's a word I just made up. Any uncleanness or uncleanliness, excuse me. (coughs) Identify the things that are within and without in our lives. And what does that do? It displays itself in our actions towards others. How do we see whose we are? It manifests itself in the way we treat others. I remember when we were going through James and we said, uh, the words that we say are a reflection not only of our tongues, but of our hearts. The tongue says what is of the heart. Same thing that Jesus is saying here. Blessed are those who are internally pure because it's going to play itself out in an external way. Jesus goes on. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. Notice it doesn't say the peacekeepers seeking to appease men for earthly peace, but peacemakers. In other words, those who are pursuing holiness, seeking to make true peace that is only found in the refuge of God. Those who seek true peace and seeking to spread True peace that is only found in the refuge of God. And those who display these attitudes, we've looked at seven of them so far, they should be applauded. Really, shouldn't they? Those who would display these seven attitudes to God and towards their fellow man should really be applauded. I I would even say outside of church, In the secular world, if I were to stand on the courthouse square and go over the seven attitudes that I just did and not read them from Scripture and say that I thought them up myself, somebody would probably buy the book that I had written and say that it's the key to making the world a better place. Everybody would agree that anybody who displays these seven attitudes should be lifted up and applauded and should be celebrated. But the eighth beatitude lets us know that Jesus understood 
what we know to be the truth, and that is to live a life that honors Christ and follows these living standards that Jesus has set forth will not make you be celebrated, but will instead make you persecuted. It will not make you celebrated, but it will instead make you persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verses 11 and 11 kind of expounds on that. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. You could almost say that Jesus was looking at his disciples. And saying this, until somebody is telling stories about you, For my sake, you're not reflecting these other seven attitudes. You're not living the way you ought to be living until you've been persecuted for my sake. Jesus understood as he pulled his disciples in. And I think it just shows the wisdom of Jesus, which we all know to be all-knowing. But as he looked at the throngs gathering and the crowd gathering. Jesus knew that this same crowd that was gathering for what he could do for them were going to be the same people that were going to push him to a cross. It was part of the divine plan, but Jesus knew that the disciples didn't. And it's almost like Jesus saw the crowd growing. He said, I need to pull these guys aside and let them know that following me is not always going to be this popular. I need to pull these guys aside and let them know that following me is not always going to be rock star status, in other words. Following me is going to cost them some things. And they really need to be ready for that. Notice real quick, he didn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted because people say evil things about them when they're living evil. That's not persecution, that's evaluation. He's saying, if you're living a life marked by me and somebody calls you evil, how should you respond? Give verse 12. Rejoice. They lie about you. They're saying things that aren't true. And you're serving me. Don't cry about it. Rejoice in it. They're saying things about you that ain't true. That just means you're working for me. Hey, guess what? They're going to say a lot of things about me, guys, that ain't true. They're going to say enough things about me that ain't true that they're going to nail me on a cross. But it's part of of my plan. Don't worry. And if you live for me, you're not going to be greater than your master. They're going to say things about you. Matthew, they're going to say things about you, sir. He might echo to Timothy. Timothy, they're going to say things about you if they said them about Paul. As he cried out to Saul on the road of Damascus, he may have said, Saul, they're going to say things about you that aren't true. Keep going. Rejoice, because they said them about me too. And he might say to a bunch of fickle baby Christians in 2018, get over it when they talk about you. 
because they talked about me too. In fact, if you've got the attitude of the Savior, you won't cry about it. You'll rejoice in it. Now that sounds crazy to rejoice when somebody's telling stories about me, but I want to vindicate myself. Why? I'll let Jesus do my vindicating. If they're telling lies about me, that means I must be telling truths about Jesus. And I will rejoice and be glad in that. Why? Because Jesus was persecuted and Saul was persecuted and Timothy was persecuted and Spurgeon was persecuted. Martin Luther was persecuted. The pastor that preached at Rocky Valley in 1852, I don't remember his name, but I guarantee you he was persecuted. So why should the pastor in 2018 not also be persecuted? Matter of fact, I should count it joy to be counted in the roll call of the faithful to be persecuted. And we should all be in the same boat. We should all seek to serve the Lord in such a way that somebody would have something to say about us. Because if Satan ain't messing with you, it's because he ain't got to. If you're doing a work for the Lord, there will be an opponent. So how could I sum up the text that we could spend eight weeks on that I've attempted to sum up in one half-hour sermon? I would say this. These are the attitudes of a believer. These are the attitudes of a disciple of Christ. And the reward for living for Christ is not measured in earthly fame or gain, but in eternity. Let's pray. Father God, God, we come to you. And as we sit in this pew, we can scarcely imagine a mountainside where you called your closest disciples to you. And you began to share with them the attitudes that your disciples would display. But God, we can easily imagine as we sit in a church pew that your words are no less true today than they were on that day on that mountainside. That the attitudes that are displayed in these first verses of your Sermon on the Mount are the same attitudes that we should be displaying in our lives today. So God, convict us, call us, to task on the things that we aren't living out in our lives and give us the courage to lay them at your feet. God, give us the courage to face persecution and to rejoice in knowing that those who have served you before were also persecuted. God, we love you. God, we thank you for what you do for us. And God, we rejoice in this day and this opportunity. And it is in your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org. Thank you and have a blessed day.